In this conversation, we're going to walk you through the fourth module of the Life After Pornography program and go in depth about the role of language and how it contributes to human suffering, mental health struggles, and ongoing challenges with unwanted pornography viewing. So I hope after this conversation, you'll be more aware of your language and more thoughtful about how the words we use to describe ourselves and our struggles often keeps us stuck in that battle that we're trying to overcome. If you're like me, you know your mind can be your best or your worst friend. Our mind is an amazing tool that can do incredible things, but our mind can also create problems out of nowhere. Sometimes our mind keeps recommending the same solutions to problems even when they aren't working. I see this pattern play out as individuals try to overcome their anxiety, depression, or even struggles with pornography, using approaches that make sense but aren't very helpful. This podcast will show you how real researchers and clinicians are changing the way we approach mental health and reveal helpful research-supported principles designed to help real people with real problems. My name is Dr. Cameron Staley, and welcome to the Life After Series Radio. So we are back again. We're going to jump in with Module 4, which is titled The Language Problem. And this is a really different way to think about a struggle with pornography as not being as much an addiction and maybe even a compulsion as it is maybe a struggle with language. And I think this is one thing that I was intrigued about with acceptance and commitment therapy is it is a behavioral therapy, but it's also based on a linguistics theory called relational frame theory. So I won't spend a ton of time on that because it probably is going to get into like nerddom. There's a lot you can. There's a lot of things to nerd out about relational frame theory, but it's a linguistics theory that informs lots of different disciplines. It's been around a long time, and it's interesting to think about how language actually informed a mental health treatment that is now effective for a variety of mental health concerns, including compulsive behaviors like unwanted pornography viewing. And so in this module, there's a lot of different exercises that kind of look at language from different ways. But I'm curious for you, Brian, as, as you went through this, what were some of your thoughts about, instead of focusing on maybe the, neuro, the neurology or the biology or the sexuality part or the struggle, to really think about the role of language in this struggle? First off, I think, the main problem most people have is that they don't think of language as part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And so there's this obliviousness to the fact that I've been telling myself a story that has been contributing to this struggle and this behavior and hearing that articulated is already this huge reframing in your perspective of, I didn't think of it like that, but we've only been told one story. And so I, I mean, I'm curious to interrogate all the nerddom of relational <laughs> frame theory too, but I think it is important to have some dialogue around the context of humans, our minds tell stories yeah. and those stories carry power. And so going through these modules and hearing those stories questioned, it it's, like earth shattering in the way that your, your platform, your only reference 
point has just completely deteriorated and now you get to re define these stories that you've been telling yourself and it it's it there's a lot of power in it i think language is completely underrated in how much power it has so i'm excited to talk talk about it yeah language is huge and, and as i listen to you think i am reflecting on you know what is the actual medicine i'm able to use in therapy and the only tool i really have is words it's language so people are communicating their struggle to me through language and i'm trying to help them through language i don't give hugs i don't like work out painful joints um, i don't prescribe medication the intervention i have is words and that's striking that using words can be quite healing and helpful to somebody and the reason why that's effective is often the struggle is bound in language too and i hadn't thought about it a whole lot till you were describing this that it, it can be earth shattering paradigm altering is often when people come in for the first time to talk about their pornography struggle, there's a very specific like lexicon or vocabulary that they come in with to describe this particular struggle. And it's really unique language. And I probably didn't attend to it before. And they probably don't recognize that how they're talking about their struggle is quite unique, but also quite consistent among individuals that struggle with porn. And honestly, what one thing I'm doing is somebody's telling me their story is I'm listening for those words. And I'm also listening to their story and their experiences, but I'm listening for specific words because acceptance and commitment therapy is helpful. As we pinpoint some of those words, that's what helps us change that story. Like you mentioned, that story is often what keeps us struck or stuck. And that story is composed of these little building blocks of specific words. It's <laughs> you could get so deep with this in saying that language has is everything to our connections, our relationships, and our behavior. Um, but looking at it from a porn specific lens, I think it's evident now a lot more for me. But cool to hear you saying that you're looking for those specific words and it's it's probably validating to hear those in the way that you're like okay they've been telling themselves this story we know how to flip it right and it's of course it's consistent because it's the only it's the fear story it's the shame story it's the addiction story like we've all heard the same things and so being able to flip that is you've already got this equation to use yep and you're right on that i think if you're struggling you're not even it's not even on your radar that the words you're using might be contributing to your struggle you're just articulating it using the only story that you've heard and i think as we start to notice that language increase more awareness of them and actually explore what are the meaning of these specific words you're using what are the associations that once we start to shift the language that somebody is using to describe their struggle, that's when they start to not struggle as much. And it's just shifting the language. And I think that is quite remarkable. 
I just had a question come to mind about the, there's obviously a level of isolation and shame that comes with the struggle with pornography. And as such, the individuals who struggle don't communicate it. It's all internal. And so the language that they're playing through is only, it's one dimensional. It's all in your head and in, like I'm thinking for me, it was the same thoughts. Every time I would watch naked people having sex, it was the same, I'm bad, I can't tell anyone, I can't stop, the classic phrases. Yep. And I, I'm just curious, if I would have just talked to someone else about it, if they would have said something that shifted just even one phrase, and then I was like, oh my gosh, there might be a different way to think about this. Yep. But I think a level isolation is you as one person. And so by definition, you're getting one perspective and that's going to hold you back. I think you're right on. I don't think I've thought about that in a lot of depth. I think you're right. So if you only live in your world and you only have your thinking, there's no feedback, right? There's no checks. There's no questioning. And so what happens is your thoughts are viewed as facts. That's it. I mean, you thought it, therefore it must be true and accurate. And there's nobody else to say, well, that's an interesting way to describe what you're going through. Or, you know, have you thought about this? Or I wonder if that's causing some of the problem, or I'm not sure that's really what's going on. There's no feedback. Right. You're just kind of trapped within your own kind of language dungeon. And it's so powerful because I think you said the the important part of that is that if you're telling yourself something and there's no feedback it's fact and you see it as fact and that's where it gets really dangerous is because that's like now truth which isn't even i don't know why that happens i mean it makes sense you only get one perspective but it's terrible and so opening up the language opening up the dialogue communicating that's yeah that's what's going to switch this yep and think about language just the acquisition of language it's a miracle. Like I've studied it from a cognitive perspective about how we actually acquire language when we're little kids. And I kind of get the science, but honestly, I think it's a miracle. It's like, here's these little kids that can barely walk and they're snotting all over the place. And somehow they're just absorbing language and they know how to describe objects. They start to understand nouns and verbs. And then they start to even like hook these little words together with little articles like the and and, and then they figure out pronouns, singular and plural. And these little kids, like I've had a a few kids now, I never sit down and talk to them about the word the and where you need to use it and how it works. Like I honestly probably couldn't define it to you now as an adult. And I've said that word a lot of times, but we just kind of naturally acquire language abilities. And I think that's what's amazing about our mind is we're able to learn language. Some of it's taught in a very rote way, but a lot of it is just learned, just kind of absorbed. And then you develop this kind of language network where you develop all these associations and your language continues to grow and develop. And not a lot of that is intentional with a teacher telling you this is this word and this is how it gets put together. 
like kids learn to speak fairly fluently before they can spell or understand written language or can read. They can speak it and they can understand it. And so language is so helpful for communication and connection and identifying threats. And it's just happening naturally. And that's like the beauty of language. But then with anything, there's like a shadow side. That there, There's a downside. That because language is kind of growing on its own, that there can be some problems that kind of grow on its own. That we didn't, weren't necessarily taught explicitly. It's just kind of how language develops and evolves. And it's simultaneously miraculous and also the source of what ACT would say is most of human suffering. I've got, I've got so many thoughts. <laughs> it, it is honestly, I will agree, it is honestly a miracle. And I think if you have ever been in a, I mean, as a parent or even as a, a child who has a younger sibling, you see them as an infant and then 10 years down the road and you're like, how the heck did you learn to talk? Like where, how have you gotten to this point? Like we're having a conversation. Like I remember you were just this helpless little thing of organs and ate all our food. Like now it's, there's a conversation, there's a person out, like it's, it's so amazing. I, I think it's an absolute miracle. And I think when you look at it like that, in that big perspective, you understand how powerful language is and how important it is that our entire, I mean, as a, as a race, it, it's what separates us from animals and yep. other living organisms is the ability we have to communicate. And our education stems from language. Our relationships stem from language, like, how much power the words I love you have oh. and I hate you have oh. and just, yeah. Like how there's a connotation to words. Yeah. I, it's, it's fascinating. And we could, I, we could have a year long discourse on <laughs> the power of words. And, but in this specific realm, I think it's, it's important to understand that, telling yourself these specific things and having those specific phrases running through your mind um, without contest, without feedback is, is dangerous. Yeah. And understanding that can really reshape your perspective on healing and growth using language. And I want to touch on some of those specific words and phrases that typically show up with a porn struggle but honestly, when you said the phrase, I love you and I hate you, I had visceral reactions to both of those phrases. And if I think about those, I love you, that's a three word statement and just three syllables. And if I do my math right, it's just eight letters total. That's it. Like we could take those letters and put them in different orders and it wouldn't have any meaning. We wouldn't have any associations, but the order you said that, I love you, I felt I had memories come back. I had flashes of relationships. I had those emotions of affection. I even thought of times where I was pressured to use that phrase, I love you. And I'm like, I'm not feeling a lot of love. I actually don't like that phrase. And all of those emotions, reactions, memories, 
showed up in an ist instant when you said that group of eight letters. Three syllables evoked all of those experiences. And then you said that I hate you right in that same breath. And just in the next moment, I felt a different sensation where I've heard those words and I've felt anger and been on the receiving end and thought of interactions in my life that haven't gone well um, where those words may have been shared and those memories and associations came up. And that is also three syllables, three words, eight letters. And language as we speak it, it's just like utterances that come from our throat and how we're shaping our mouth. They're just sounds. And yet those groupings of sounds evoked years of memories and actual emotions in this very moment, just from those little phrases that you just dropped. It is honestly a miracle. I, I, I think it is the coolest thing. And one, I love the life after pornography program. I'm realizing day by day that it is so much more than just informing you how to overcome a struggle with pornography. Understanding language is monumental. And just even in my conversations with friends in reading literature and articles, you see the way that people manipulate language to evoke those emotions yep. or to market or sell and it's fascinating and i see specifically to give an example of language that might be dangerous in this struggle with pornography context of calling something a sickness or a pandemic um, of pornography is a destructive illness um, and to hear destructive is one word but illness also and a sickness and a disease and a plague like i'm thinking of black plague i'm thinking of covid like you know, people are literally putting on masks to stay away from me because i struggle with porn i've shut down the global economy like but like those are the stories your mind is capable of telling yourself and it's because of a word like plague yeah and we i think you could be so hard on yourself to never speak another word because you're afraid of saying something that might trigger a certain emotion, but being conscious of it, I think will just make you a better human being. Yeah. Um, and also more caring and understanding and considerate to the struggles other people might be going through. Um, but yeah, just words. I'm sure I could ask you for the full blown list and put you on the spot of like, addiction language around the struggle with pornography and the effects that that has on the human mentality of I'm stuck. I have this for life. Why would I do anything about it? Yep. And that's a story or the plague. People don't want to be around me because I'm a leper. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying how powerful it is. But once you understand it, it's hopeful that you can reframe. Yep. And you're right. We're, we're swimming in language. So we're not that aware of it. It's the water we swim in. We're swimming in our thoughts. We're not even aware that we're thinking. We're just, our thinking is who we are. And there's a difference between thinking and observing your thinking. 
or speaking and noticing that you're speaking. Those are separate things. And so if we kind of zoom in on some of those words, let, maybe we'll start at the top. I thought, oh, let's save addiction for the end, but let's start with that one. <laughs> okay. Because that term, like you said, that's a story. And I think as a psychologist, I've been tracking the research literature on whether or not pornography is an addiction. And that's something that people have been studying for a couple of decades. And there's been hundreds of studies looking at whether or not pornography is addiction. And we're not anywhere closer, like answering that question. <laughs> and that debate's gonna rage on. Like people still wanna define this um, using addiction or compulsion language or impulse control or whatever language, because our minds like to classify things. We like to put categories and labels and understand what's going on. And what I appreciate about acceptance and commitment therapy is it's really not interested in answering the question of if pornography is an addiction or not. It's really saying, is using that term helping you change your behavior or is it keeping you stuck? And ACT really doesn't have like a horse in the race on if it's an addiction or not. It's, it's honestly not that relevant because the reality is if pornography functioned like an addiction or if it didn't, ACT is still an effective treatment for changing your behavior. And right. that's what's relevant. And it is able to change behavior because it's looking at the impact of that word addiction from a language standpoint, not from a biological standpoint or a neurological standpoint. It's looking at when you say, I'm an addict, what are all those associations that come up? And you named a bunch of those where this is permanent. This is a disease. This is outside of my control. This is shameful. I am powerless. This is dark. This is isolating. I, I'm broken. I'm lost. I, I cannot do this on my own. And that's just a snapshot of some of the associations that we have to that term simply because addiction is a word within a larger semantic network. And it has lots and lots of associations. And most of the associations with the term addiction are quite judgmental, critical, negative, pretty depressing, pretty hopeless. And so not only describing your struggle as an addiction, but then describing yourself as an addict, your identity becomes associated with a, a word that is really quite dark. And for me, that's why the language we use around it is really key. And so I think when I talk about pornography and the addiction word, some people are still super invested in, well, it is an, it is an addiction. That's the story that's being told. And they'll want to cite research or kind of argue ins and outs. And I'll nod along, but in the end, I, I'm more interested in the impact of that cluster of sounds and that combination of letters and that vocalization, vocalizations that we produce, that word addiction and all the associations that come up that seem to be contributing to why somebody is still struggling with porn. I love that. And I think, I mean, it's hard to argue with the fact that ACT, ACT is really trying to help behavior. And I, I think you said it perfectly. Like it, it doesn't matter if it is an addiction or not. And even just hearing that is like, I've spent years of my life in a mental cage match with myself debating if I was an addict and all of a sudden it 
it doesn't really matter. Like, it's like, oh my heavens, what was I? I was just telling those stories to myself. And it clearly did not help. <laughs> like it did, it made it worse. And so looking at it with, with that lens of perspective and common sense, honestly, it's, it, it's fascinating um, that addiction and addict can carry that much weight. And what I've seen is, as people start to let go of their grip of that term, I start to see growth and change and reductions in porn viewing like instantaneously. It's the language that's keeping people stuck, which if you haven't gone through this, it's probably like, nah, that's not what it is. Like it's, it's gotta be bigger than that. But it often is that language shift. And there's a lot of other words that people use to describe their struggle. And so maybe we could kind of throw some of those words and phrases out there just to give people an idea. Cause if you're swimming in this language, you're probably not that aware of it. Um, but some of the other terms I hear quite a bit is, well, I relapsed or I messed up um, or what I do is deviant or a sinful um, or immoral. Um, I slipped up. Like all these kind of euphemisms that's really not talking about the actual behavior that you're engaging in and also not highlighting your active role in the behavior. There are things that are kind of happening. We don't really know what's happening, but they happened. And I was there when it happened, but I wasn't involved. Like these things kind of happened. And that language is quite distracting from the reality of that even though we have thoughts and we tell ourselves stories, we are the ones that are choosing our behavior. And sometimes this language kind of masks that reality. Where it's like, no, this just kind of happened. I just slipped up. I don't, I don't know what happened. It just happened. It's like, well, what do you mean happened? And, and what happened? And who made it happen? And that's the power of language is it kind of puts a blanket on what's really going on and relinquishing your responsibility from it. Um, and some of the words we use are quite like detrimental to ourselves, but also in a way attempt to alleviate any personal responsibility for our decisions at the same time. So it's kind of that bind that we're in, that we're not really describing what's going on and not taking responsibility for the actions at the same time. Forgive me for kind of having an off topic thought, but it would be cool to have a study done on the relationship between individuals who use specific language in the US who are English speakers and we're familiar with the language and then going to Ghana or some remote country where they probably don't even have language to describe some of the crazy, I don't know, lust and adultery and all of these arrows that are coming at you it would be fascinating to see if there's a relationship between and you're smiling as if you like already know that there's this study and i'm like oh <laughs> okay it would just be cool that if there was a if there was a culture that didn't have words that negatively had negative connotations around sexuality and struggles with pornography if there would be a struggle with pornography 
Yeah. I love that. I think that's, I, I'm smiling because that speaks to the researcher in me. That's like, okay. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> we could study that. Like that's an empirical question. We could design a cross-cultural study and answer that question. And that, that study may, those studies may be out there. I'm just thinking anecdotally, I've got colleagues that are from Europe and their language around sexuality is quite different. And mm -hmm. there's not a lot of addiction language and not a lot of pathology. There's a lot more openness and understanding and the struggles with pornography are considerably less. Um, because it's it's viewed more as yeah this is adult entertainment this is something that you can view or not view but it's not viewed as an epidemic or a plague or a disease or something that's going to lead to these catastrophic problems it's just another source of entertainment that you can choose to view or not and i think that language around it really changes the power associated with viewing sexual images and often all that fear and that power of not being in control is what keeps people trapped in a compulsive behavior. And so if you don't have that language that's fueling fear and lack of control, you're less afraid and have more control. And a, a lot of that does come through language. So I can think about people just in different cultures where that's the case. And I'd say nine times out of 10, the folks I work with that struggle with porn are from more conservative religious cultures where addiction language is the language used to describe sexuality and pornography. And that's often why they're struggling at higher rates, even though they're not viewing porn at higher rates, but they're experiencing more distress and struggling more because of the language that they've been taught to describe this struggle. And most of it's addiction-based language. That's so interesting. I'm trying to walk through the, the process in my mind of we have an emotion and then to articulate that emotion, we start telling ourselves a story and then there's normally a behavior based off those two. I'm trying to make sense of all this. Um, but when we have this emotion that isn't, batter an urge that comes up but the only language we have to articulate that urge is negative and is i don't even know what i want to say like defeating or like detrimental to our mentality around something then our behavior will obviously result or be a product of that. Sorry, I'm trying to articulate. This is, no, uh, is I think this you a, got it. This is the process, right? Yeah, that's how it works. So if I think about, and I've, I've been studying a lot more recently about, you know, what are emotions? I mean, that seems like such a basic thing, but they really are coming from autonomic nervous system activity. So we've got a couple branches of our autonomic nervous system. We've got our sympathetic nervous system that prepares us to fight against threat or run away. And we got our parasympathetic nervous system that sometimes kicks in when we can't run away from a threat or fight back and we can freeze. But also part of that nervous system is kind of our tend and befriend response where we can be playful and socially connect with other people. So this nervous system is constantly scanning the environment for cues of threat and safety and connection. And so as it's scanning, most of those nervous system branches are communicating to our brain. 
And often we think our brain is telling our body what to do, but with our autonomic nervous system, most of that is going the other way. It's actually sensing and then communicating to our brain what's going on. And so these nervous system, you know, it's all throughout our face and our head and our chest and our stomach. And it's, it's evolved um, within humans to be quite sophisticated. And so really these emotions are just terms for different types of activation that's communicating what's going on in our environment. And so we use words to describe that. And so we might be experiencing a sensation and we describe it as anxiety. And it's like anxiety has got this connotation that something bad's gonna go down. Like this is not gonna be okay. And I won't be able to control it and it won't be manageable. Anxiety is bad. And I wanna control it and I wanna prevent it. And if I've got a lot of anxiety, maybe I have a disorder. You know, maybe I need medication. Maybe I need to go see Cameron in therapy. I got to get rid of this anxiety. It's, it's bad. I, this is not something that should be. And yet, if we use a different term to describe the almost identical nervous system input, we could use the term excitement. Like at a physiological basis, those two emotions are pretty much identical. The only thing that's different is the label we affix to it. So if we say, oh, I'm excited, it's like, well, that's a good thing. And I'm looking forward to it. And this is going to be an adventure. And I've got a lot of energy and I can't wait to do more. It's the same, same physical response. But that word choice, that label, sends us down two different paths. Or once thing, once something we should avoid, and if you got it, you're weak. The other is something we should pursue and what life should be about. And the only thing that's different is a word, is a label. And so you're right on. So we've got this nervous system that is doing its thing. And then we are translating it with our mind and using language. So the more precise our language is and the less judgmental it is and the more educated it is, the more helpful our descriptions of what's going on physically are. But the less we are aware of those words and the more judgmental language we use and the more pathologizing language we use, we start to describe our experience as abnormal or pathological and start to struggle with these problems. And that's where ACT is saying a lot of mental health disorders are coming from is the stories and labels and language we use to describe really normal human experience. When it's said like that, it makes sense why people get stuck because it, I mean, it's just obvious. You see pornography in any vehicle that that comes in, and your first mental response with the language is, "That's bad. I'm bad. I'm an addict. I've just lusted after something." Like it seems like there's just this volcano erupting of language that's destructive and harmful and then the behavior of course seems inescapable yeah when you're telling yourself that language and then after that behavior you're right back to the language yep that's what i got <laughs> that's the cycle right and so it i you just have so much sympathy for that process and why people get stuck in behaviors yeah. and that goes for it i like how you like anxiety 
and depression and tons of other mental health um, struggles. And it, it just makes so much sense, but it's the relationship between the emotions and the language yep. that I, I think if you navigate those, the behavior is going to change and it's going to be in your power. You got it. And I think about even just using anxiety as an example, often a phrase I hear from people is I have anxiety. And I think about, you know, how much sense does that phrase even make? And it's, I try to substitute the term anxiety with a different emotion to say, I have sadness or I have happiness or I have despair. It's a lot of things make sense. <laughs> it makes it seem so temporary. It's temporary. Yeah. Yeah. Sadness is an emotion that you have and it can be quite overwhelming and it can last for a, a period of time. But sadness is not something that we possess and it's not who we are. It's an emotion that we experience. And anxiety is the same way. So I think about anxiety, all it really is, is anticipating fear in the future. So to say, well, I've got this anxiety, people start to become anxious about having anxiety. They're anxious about having that word. And the same thing's true with depression. Often I hear people say, I have depression. It's like, what do you mean? Is like, I have hopelessness. I have helplessness. It's like, those don't make a lot of sense, but we use those clinical terms so commonly that we don't even question it. And what I've seen is a lot of people who experience depressive symptoms that are quite normal, part of this human experience. There's a lot of highs and lows in this life, but some people start to feel depressed about having depression. It's like, well, now I've got this thing, it's got a term, it's a disorder, it's a weakness, it's a disease. Now I'm feeling pretty sad about having sadness. And a lot of that is that cycle. And so people become more depressed or become more anxious because they're in a loop, a feedback loop with the language. And it's the same thing with pornography. And so in this module four, which I think we've touched on a little bit, we're touching on the big concepts. We haven't yes. touched on the exercises a whole lot, <laughs> but there's an exercise in there and I'll, I'll show you the prop. Um, I happen oh, to have that. This. I'm doing a training tomorrow and I'm like, oh, I gotta use this prop. I love this prop. Um, but it's the same one we use in this module. And I ask people to describe this. So I'm gonna ask you, Brian, like describe what you see with this object. Tall, narrow, um, two-toned, fierce. Um, it's smooth on the back, but very textured and defined. Flat bottom. Um, the design is very intricate. Um, that's a big nose. <laughs> um, that's good. You're pretty yeah. good. So I, I kind of threw you in there and you used mostly descriptions yeah. of this object that are based on the physical properties of this object. I only heard two that I would say were more opinions or evaluations or judgments about this object. What would you say might be those two? You're like, well, they're probably not based on the facts of this object. It's angry and fierce, right? Fierce. Also the big nose. 
Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do that. That's our mind. It's like, oh, that combination of carvings kind of resembles a face. And that nose is a little bit bigger than the noses I typically come across. I see a face. I see a nose. And the way these carvings are, they're fierce. And our mind is just putting all these associations on this object. And so it does it interchangeably, describing the physical properties, but also adding stories to this block of wood. And I'm curious if you were aware of that, because you've gone through this module, you've thought about language a lot. Was that intentional or did that just kind of come out? So I got to admit, at first, you, you pulled it up and I, I, wanted to say, I wanted to say angry right off the bat. And then I remembered the module and then I was like, okay, wait, wait, I got to be honest and say what I am actually seeing. And so, yes, but that totem is going to be worth millions one day. So I'm glad you're holding on to it. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's going to know it. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you've even done this before and your first association was still to say angry. Yeah. Why? I don't know if it was because that was my first association before. I, I mean, but that I saw that and that, I mean, that's the first thing that comes to my head and it is just the shape I associate with the thing I am perceiving to be teeth yeah. and eyes and a face. Yeah. And that's a pretty common association that I probably have a really similar one. And most people would be like, well, it looks angry. Like what's the big deal? What's the problem with calling this angry? It's now defined by my language. And what's the problem with that? It looks pretty angry. It, it couldn't be angry, but I am telling myself the story that it is and therefore will behave accordingly. That's it. And you're right. That's the step our mind doesn't take. If we think about it, this block of wood is not capable of the emotion of anger. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not trying to intimidate us. It doesn't have volition. It doesn't have an objective or an intention. It's a block of wood that somebody carved. But we put on there, well, it's got a face and it's angry. And like we could ramp this up and we do this in the module to say, you know, what if we called this an idol? Yeah. And what if we said you need to worship it now and it demands a sacrifice and you need to give it a donation? And now a lot of our life is going to revolve around serving this block of wood and trying not to upset it because it's angry and making sure it's okay. And a lot of that is just coming from the stories that we tell ourselves. What else could we call this, Brian? <laughs> our struggle with pornography. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We I... called this block of wood pornography that what you're looking at is actually pornography. It's crazy because now my mind immediately went to the thousands of different roads of the stories I've told. And now I'm like, I, I won't look at that because it's <laughs> pornography, right? Like, yeah. Like, what am I doing? What are you doing holding that up on the screen, right? Like, yep. it's crazy that words carry that much power. Yep. 
You're right on it. Islam looking at this like, well, you know, maybe it's not wearing pants. Maybe it is topless. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe it is. And it's like, wait a minute. Nothing changed with this object. The physical properties of this object have not changed. The only thing that changed was the language we used to describe it. It came from a, to be a block of wood to an angry idol to now pornography, which we've been trying really hard to avoid because it's really bad to look at and it's super dangerous. I probably shouldn't be holding this anymore and it shouldn't be on camera. The only thing that changed was our words. If that doesn't articulate the principle, I don't know what does. I love that part of the module. It's amazing. And so to think about one of my favorite metaphors from ACT that's in this module is the tug of war. The struggle we've had with pornography and addiction feels like this endless tug of war with this monster that you just can't vanquish. And it's so scary. We don't actually look at what it is. But if you looked at what it was, it's just words. And those words are terrifying and they're called addiction and disease and disorder and deviant. And that's terrifying to look at. And we're going to keep struggling to battle that word monster till we vanquish it. The only problem with that is if this problem's coming from words, trying to solve it with more words ain't going to fix it. And it's just the words. So if we change our words, and focus more on descriptions and let go of these evaluative judgments, we start to be less afraid of what's on the other end of this tug of war rope and recognize often what we're struggling with is we have really natural sexual urges and desire. We have these natural emotions that are just coming from our nervous system, just scanning the environment, trying to communicate to us. And if we can just describe those for what they are, they can be quite manageable, quite helpful, quite fulfilling. And there's really nothing to struggle with. We're typically struggling with the pathological language and the judgments we add to it. Really all the stories we tell ourselves around sexuality becomes a struggle. But if we just say, yeah, sometimes I have sexual urges, I feel sexual arousal, it's pretty normal. There's not a whole lot to struggle with. But if we say, oh, because I had a sexual urge, I am an addict. Oh my gosh, we got to solve that problem. And really the only thing that changed was the language we're using to describe really normal human phenomenon. And I love the language you use in the modules and in your programs, like the drop the rope mm. expert interview series, right? Of once you realize what this tug of war is, you understand that you don't even need to be in it. Yeah. And that alone, like i don't know what the opposite of exhausting is but you've been tugging this thing for <laughs> decades and all of a sudden you can let it go yep this struggle that you've had and that that is it's freeing it's liberating yep and it's it's language <laughs> and you wouldn't it's i i think i've said this phrase so many times on these podcasts but it's it's laughable how simple it can be sometimes. Yep. And I think that's part of the problem is even in our language, we're looking for some big fix and some big complex equation that we can fit into this and it's the right answer, but it's, it really is as simple as changing the language.
it. changing the narrative. That's it. Yeah. That's a huge part of it is being aware of the words and how the words we use are constructing our own trap, constructing the own, our own struggle. And I, I recently just looked up like, how many thoughts do we have? Like, I never thought about that. And I don't know how they estimated this, but someone said we might have about 6,000 thoughts in a day. Holy cow. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of thoughts. I'm probably aware of maybe 60 of them. Right. <laughs> a fraction of these 6,000 thoughts. And I thought, okay, of those 6,000 thoughts, I bet some are pretty helpful and some are very accurate. I bet a lot of them are just random and science fiction and weird and nonsensical and not helpful. I'm just not aware of a lot of those, but some of the thoughts really stick. And the thoughts that are critical about myself or judgmental or comparing or when I feel less than, I really hold on to those thoughts. The other ones where it's like, oh, you're doing a good job and that was pretty helpful and hey, nice job feeding your kids. I don't really latch on to those thoughts. It's just the ones that I feel like are scary. I latch on to. And I think part of it is you're right. We're going to change the narrative. We're going to change the language. But the other thing we're doing with ACT is we're changing our relationship to the thoughts. So if we're unaware of the fact that we're thinking, our thoughts are just who we are. There's no distance between us and the thought. They're the same. And as we increase awareness between who we are and that we're thinking, there is now space to act. And this is what you were saying before. It's like, okay, we're having these experiences, we're having these emotions and thinking, and then we act. And without awareness, it typically goes in that sequence. We have an emotion, we have a thought, we act. And it's just like cause and effect. With awareness through mindfulness training, there's actually a space between you, emotions, and thinking, where emotions and thinking don't lead to behavior. You actually get to choose your behavior. And that is the game changer. But first we have to understand that we are not our thoughts, that thinking is just parts of our experience. Thoughts are not fact. They're not accurate predictions of our future. They're just thinking. And our mind does a lot of it. And you can have a thought that my fingers are made of carrots. That's an interesting thought. It's not, not true, not very helpful. It's just a thought. Um, you can have a thought that I'm addicted. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. But you can discount my fingers are made of carrots because that's kind of silly. But when you hear that I'm an addict, it's like, well, that's got to be true. I've heard it before and it's really scary. I don't want to be that. And the scarier it is, like the more true it feels. And so you can have that thought, but just kind of take it from in front of your face and inspect it and be like, isn't that interesting? But all I've heard is that if you have an urge, you're an addict. That's interesting. But there's been times in my life where I've had urges and I haven't looked at sexual images. Huh, that's kind of inconsistent with that thought. I don't even know what addict means. That's interesting that I've had that thought. I've heard a lot of people share this story, but just creating distance between your thinking is a game changer. And mindfulness, that's really its objective. And why mindfulness has really changed mental health therapy. It used to be we're focused on just cognitions and emotions and behavior. With mindfulness, it's like, wow, you can have those thoughts. You don't even need to get rid of them. They don't have to run your life. That when you're aware of a thought, you don't have to obey it anymore. Or aware that you're having an urge, you can just understand it 
and you can choose your actions. And so much of this just comes from being aware that we're thinkers and that we've got language. And it goes back to controlling what you can control and being aware of what you can't. Because if you're trying to control your 6,000 thoughts that you have every day, and before that, the emotions of your environment or that your environment are evoking and the urges that you have, you're, there's no way. Um, but awareness and mindfulness creating that distance to navigate the space. And the thing I find interesting is that even in this podcast is we were reverting back to that kind of addiction language or something after a thought and the stream of consciousness goes so fast because that language is there and it's available and you can, you can get from point a of, I just saw porn to point B of I'm going to hurt children in 0.2 seconds. Yep. And it's just all those thoughts are just bunched together and you can just bolt right through them. But that distance of now you're taking that first thought and inspecting it and letting it go. You don't have to go through that bunch anymore. And you don't have to have the behavior present itself at the end of that. Yeah. And so I, I love, I love just the visual of that, of creating space to freely navigate and to inspect and let things go or to inspect and hold on. Cause those are your values. Yeah. I, that's, I mean, you're right. That is act in a nutshell. That's what it is. That's it. And you're right. And so I think about Axe's mental health cousin is DBT, dialectical right. behavior therapy, that is a mindfulness-based approach as well. And they do a thing in DBT called chain analysis, where they look at kind of cause and effect. Like you had this thought, this behavior occurred. What are all of the links along the way, all the little chains, all the little thoughts, all the little emotions that led to that? And it's amazing as you go through that because you have that urge and it's like, well, I'm going to hurt people. Or your partner looked at view or porn view and it's like, well, now we're going to get a divorce. It's like, wow, that speed of thought happens so quickly that we don't even know all of the different thoughts, the memories, the fears, the stories. And so sometimes you just diagram it. Be like, okay, let's actually link all those to see how we got from point A to point B. There's actually a whole alphabet in the middle <laughs> between those two little letters and let's look at them. What are all these thoughts? And let's inspect them. Let's look at the validity of some of those. Let's let some go. Let's follow some a little bit farther. Let's understand all of the thoughts that happened in a split second. And just slowing down looking at those diffuses the power of these fears and diffuses that language. And it's really coming down to mindfulness. And that's why each of these modules begins with a mindfulness exercise. And most folks that go through this program and say, oh, I need a little bit more help, often kind of skip through the mindfulness part <laughs> where it's like, oh, that's kind of boring. Let's go through the really cool stuff and learn the new concept. This is amazing. It's like, yes, ACT concepts are amazing, but the actual working part is separating you from the thoughts. And that occurs through mindfulness. That there's not like a fast forward button for that. 
we actually have to slow down and engage in the mindfulness practices and principles to have that ability to diffuse ourselves from thinking. And it's so powerful. And it, it's easy to go through exercises and to see it too. And it's, it's very, very validating too, once you do have that space to then have your decade long struggle of something you thought you couldn't control as a behavior now understood and able to navigate and conceptually what that does for your mental health is fantastic. I think it creates this power to, you can now, you're not hostage to your thoughts, but you can understand them. And I think it's a, I think it's an absolute blessing. And I, I didn't think it was that way for a long time, but it is an absolute blessing to be able to do that and to have so many thoughts, yeah. but it, it can very easily kind of take you over. Yeah, you're right. Our mind is this engine that's always going, always going. And it's a blessing. It's a miracle. It helps us get so much done. And as long as you've got an owner's manual for it and know what's going on, it works pretty well. But if you don't know how the engine works and you start to struggle with it and change it in some way, it starts to backfire and cause some problems. And I, I like what you said. This is, it's so empowering when, if you're held hostage by language and you don't even know that you're held hostage by that, it's like, something's got me, but I don't know what it is. And they're demanding a ransom, but I don't even know who I'm talking to. <laughs> But when you can actually interact with it, this is why unwanted pornography viewing behavior can change so quickly and doesn't take years of recovery or neurological changes or your biology to reset. It doesn't take that because what is maintaining the problem is the language you're using in this moment. So if we start to change this language now, that changes your how you're interacting with your own sexuality, your own, your own emotions, and is creating a different reality for you. And that's not something you have to work for, and maybe someday down the road you'll accomplish it, is as we talk and think about it differently and interact with those thoughts differently, the struggle starts to evaporate now, not after years of work, now. And I think that's the power and why a lot of folks that have Kind of bought into the addiction story say that can't be this just takes so much work and it's like it does if that's the language you're using and the only narrative that you know but if you change your language that starts to evaporate now because it's the language that's creating this ongoing problem and shifting that and shifting our relationship to it is what changes the struggle and that for me is so hopeful and why act makes sense and why the outcomes are what they are that this is an effective treatment for reducing porn because it's actually targeting the underlying mechanisms and not perpetuating a story that's not based on the facts. I love having that make sense. And I, I appreciate that there is such a understandable model to it yeah. and that it is based off the mechanics of the mind that it's, it's very evident that your mind's going fast and always coming up with thoughts and, language can derail you 
Um, but having a therapy, acceptance commitment therapy that's based on those mechanics and to use the language you did it and what you were just saying about it doesn't take years and it's proven to help like that that is hopeful yeah. and it's exciting and it's freeing and even those words right the visceral response of you just want to sit up taller and smile big that there's light at the end of the tunnel right yep. or light now you're not even in a tunnel right like it's it's there you're you're in it like it's there it's amazing well this has been fun we haven't had a chat for a little while i miss these conversations it's fun I <laughs> modules and not everybody knows this but you know you've actually spent more time studying acceptance and commitment therapy um, and are currently going through a training program with Steve Hayes, who developed ACT. So it's it's fun to hear that you went through the Life After Pornography program, got introduction to ACT, and it's like you're going deeper. You've bought books, you've bought training yeah. courses, like you're learning more of ACT and discovering that it's not just a trick to control sexual urges or overcome porn. It's the owner's manual for your mind and how to live your life. And it's the manual that we need to have this engine humming and working for us instead of struggling with it. So it's fun that you're getting even additional insights and in taking this on is like something that you want to learn more about. Absolutely. And I, just to see the contrast of living my life without that owner's manual and just putting a brick on the pedal and just not even hands on the steering wheel, just kind of <laughs> going, that's a, it is not, it's exhausting yeah. and dangerous, but to, to have that owner's manual and to really understand it, I think is just uh, such a blessing. And I hope that there's more education about it. And I hope that people talk about it more and I, it's what we're trying to do and you've done. And so it's, it's exciting. And I, I really do. I think it is such a big blessing that we have these, these resources available. Yeah, we know so much more now than we did. And it's yeah. great. This is a lot more accessible. And there's so many great act self-help books out there that it's like, yep, you can learn these principles now and improve your life. So thanks for joining me once again to share your insights. Um, I love these conversations. And I hope that some of the language that we've been using has helped people. Just hearing a different way to talk about it, I think could be helpful for people and getting that feedback that they haven't heard before because they're just swimming in their own thoughts. So hopefully that's what these podcasts can do is be helpful, just absorbing different language. Absolutely. This was such a happy conversation. I hope, <laughs> I hope that's validating that there can be happy conversations about this and using good language. So thank you. I'm, I'm always excited. Awesome. Okay. Till next time, Brian, we'll do it again. We'll do module five. We're almost halfway through. There it is. Okay. Okay. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe. I know you might be facing some issues in your life or know someone who is. Issues like anxiety, challenges in dealing with emotions, or other compulsive behaviors like unwanted pornography. And I know it's tough to talk to people about problems. 
difficult to stare those obstacles down that we face in life and to really know how to deal with them. It's hard to know what to say and when to say it. And then when that moment you finally reach out to family and friends happens, sometimes it falls flat. I haven't found many programs teaching effective strategies like mindfulness, how to improve relationships, and ways to address unwanted pornography viewing through research-supported principles. So whether you simply want to help with a problem like unwanted pornography, difficulty responding to emotions, or just want to understand the world of someone struggling with porn a little better, head over to lifeafterpornography.com and get in on the next training. There you'll learn the exact same strategies individuals addicted to pornography used to transform their lives by implementing principles from evidence-based treatment shown effective in research for reducing unwanted pornography viewing. You'll learn the secrets, the myths, the enemies to recovery, and the LAP framework for dealing with unwanted porn viewing that we call WAVE. If that's something that interests you, click the link in the description or just head over to lifeafterpornography.com. I'm Dr. Cameron Staley. See you on the inside.